It's good to see you all. For some of you who don't know me, my name is Chris, and I have been teaching through 1 Peter now for a while with the body here, and we're in chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verse 13 through 22, so you can follow along with me. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22. Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right than doing what is wrong. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit." in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as we started singing this morning, thinking about the thousands and thousands and the myriads of angels that now just in your presence serve you and worship you, it's just hard to fathom the marvel of all of that. Lord, there's a sense in which that our songs this morning echo their songs. And, and yet, Lord, our songs are much deeper, more richer, full with more gratitude, Lord, because we are the targets of your redemption. Lord Jesus, you came and bled and died, not for angels, but for us sinners. And we praise you for that. And Lord, what a song we have to sing. And Lord, we thank you that you have surrounded us with songs of deliverance, Lord. There are so many ways that... that that uh, we are personally, can, we personally can sing to you of the glory of being delivered, and also our brethren that surround us, also having testimonies of how you worked in their lives. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the gathering of the body where we can just each just reflect on your goodness to each one of us here. And each of us, Lord, um, you've set apart for yourself. And, and so, Lord, this morning now, as we, as we come to your word, Lord Jesus, we are your disciples, and we want you to teach us. We want you to open your mouth. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say. Lord, help me to speak clearly as I ought. And to the end, Lord, that we are all renewed, refined, strengthened, Lord, sinner saved, and you are honored in all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Peter 3. So today we're going to take a look at verse 17 and most of 18. And just as a brief review, Peter has been encouraging the believers 
in verse 8 through 12 to live godly lives, peaceable lives, that they might inherit a blessing from the Lord. In other words, the life that the Lord blesses personally and as a church is a life that cares greatly about peace. It's a life that cares greatly about turning away from evil, a life that cares greatly about doing good. These are the things that the Lord wants. And a lot of these characteristics that he has in verse 8 through 12 have to do with the way we interact with one another as a body of believers. Sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, all that. But of course, it also has to do with outsiders as well. He says, the one who seeks a blessing from God must turn away from evil and do good. This do good is a very broad category, doing good, doing good in so many ways. Sure, it can be at your house, can be in the household of the Lord, but it also has to do with doing good to outsiders that they might see your good works and glorify God in heaven. And doing good at first might seem a very simple command, a very simple exhortation, but when you think about the fact that Christianity is by and large illegal at this point in time in history, it starts to take on a little bit different weight. And especially as time would go on in the Roman Empire, and especially out here in Asia Minor, the reality is that Christianity would become more and more scrutinized, and then there would be systematic persecution throughout. And so doing good ends up becoming a little bit harder of a command to follow when you know that if you step foot out of your house, someone may rat you out if they see that you bear the name of Christ or they hear you talking about him or that kind of thing. So Peter is writing in a context where Christians are looked at as suspect. They are people that are already sort of swimming against the grain of the culture. And yet Peter and his exhortation stands to do good. And to remember, verse 12, that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. And to also remember that ultimately the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter goes on to encourage them in this admonition to do good. And he says, verse 13, who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Peter has a a sneaking suspicion here that, yes, Christianity is, is looked at and looked down upon by many And yet at the same time, if you do good, this this oftentimes will mean that no harm will come to you. Sometimes it surely will, but oftentimes it won't. Even in prison, if you have good behavior, you're rewarded for it. Now, it's a crooked system, so that's not always true, but oftentimes it is. But Peter says that even if that's true, though, that, that, that sometimes, and maybe even most of the time, you won't be harmed if you do good. Verse 14 It's not a guarantee, and he says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. It's always important to remember that. If you stand for the truth in some way, with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, governing authorities, you're standing for truth, and they bring upon you heat and persecution, you are blessed. That is a blessed state of affairs. You are a blessed individual. You may not look blessed on the news, But from God's perspective, you are blessed because it means you're on the right team. You're suffering like your master, the Lord Jesus, who said, if they call me Beelzebul, they're going to call you worse. You are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. They're going to intimidate. They're going to pressure. There's going to be all of this talk about what they're going to do to you. He says, don't fear it. Do not be troubled. Well, how is that possible? I mean, these people are, are real people. These people have real venom. These people have real guns. How can we not be afraid? 
I mean, we just saw, I mean, you, you can watch on the news people overseas and, and many, many Christians in, in parts of the Middle East who will be beheaded for their faith. And Peter would, how would they supposed to take these things to heart? <laughs> how are they supposed to take this admonition to not be afraid? Well, you're not be afraid because in verse 15, we realize that there's a Lord of the universe that's on your side. Verse 15, but set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. When you go into situations where you're going to face persecution, you have to remember there's a God on the throne who is for you. And as one man said, if they lop your head off, he'll catch it on the other side. Not a hair of your head will perish, Jesus says. Isn't that what he says? Some of you they will kill, but not a hair on your head will perish. Well, that seems like a contradiction. But it's not, is it? Because we know the end. We know the end of the matter. Jesus Christ is our Lord. And he said, set apart Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ is bringing you into this situation to suffer. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and his will is bringing you into this situation where you're suffering before family, friends, and governments so that you can testify of his goodness. How many times in the book of Matthew and in the Gospels does he say, I'm gonna bring, they're going to bring you before synagogues and officials and rulers. It will be a chance to testify of me. I'm setting them up through you so they can hear my truth. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Make a decisive commitment in your mind and heart to know that Jesus is on the throne, period, and he's your Lord. And always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. Always be ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? Is Christ so set apart as Lord in your heart and the goodness he's shown to you in the gospel is so fresh on your mind that you can say to those who ask you, well, let me tell you a little bit about why I am the way I am. See, these things have to stay fresh on us to be ready. And he says, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Keep a good conscience, he says. Keeping a good conscience is so important in times of suffering. It's so important. My counsel to, to wives and husbands whose spouses are, perhaps they're unbelievers and they're experiencing persecution and, and they want to flee. My, my admonition to them is, Look, keep your own conscience clean. You're going to be tempted to do things that you never thought you'd be tempted to do in response to your, your spouse going astray. Keep a good conscience. It's tempting when you're getting all the pressure to lash out in anger, right? It's tempting to, when you see a government that's coming un, 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 uh, unhinged for morality like our own, it's so tempting to think, well, let's revolt, let's do something, right? Let's, let's defy the tyranny that exists. Let's revolt. Let's, let's take up a zealotry, zealotry spirit. And Peter says, keep a good conscience. Don't revolt. You're going to want to revolt, but you're not a zealot. I didn't call you to be a zealot, at least not for that kingdom, for my kingdom. Keep a good conscience. Be like your master that while he was threatened, he didn't threaten back. While reviled, he didn't revile back. Why? So that those who revile your good behavior, verse 16, in Christ will be put to shame. <laughs> now that could mean in this life where they start to realize, wow, there really wasn't anything to these accusations against this guy. And they'll be put to shame and they'll see that. But ultimately it will happen in the day of the Lord, won't it? All these people that have persecuted all these Christians, many of which you, don't need, you and I don't even know their names and we never will. One day their persecutors are going to stand before the throne and they will be utterly shamed and derided when Jesus puts his arm around them. 
and says, these are mine. They will know what it is to be shamed. Daniel says they will face everlasting contempt. Verse 17, our text today, Peter reiterating a lot of the same points. He says, for it is better, still on this topic of suffering for righteousness, it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. It is better. Don't suffer for what is wrong. Don't, don't, don't become unbelieving and start to take matters into your own hands and get all frantic and furled and, and want to lash back. And don't, don't, that'll bring, Jesus says, you live by the sword, you'll die by the what? The sword. That, you don't go there. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Don't suffer for what is wrong. But at the beginning of verse 17, he says that this is God's will that you suffer. <laughs> It's God's will. Think of that. There is one will that ultimately matters and that is supreme in the affairs of men. People want to talk about free will and, and, and that, that we have as, as mankind, and that's an interesting debate, but the bottom line, the main will that matters is God's. <laughs> what is His will? We live under the absolute reign of God. He's the director of our lives. His will is that to which we always are subject as believers. Everyone is ultimately, but we have to be. We, we have to recognize this at every stage of our lives. We have to remember Psalm 115.3. Our God, our God, not just the God, our God. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. There is no higher power than God. God is king, and he's king over all kings. And Jesus Christ now has assumed that place at God's right hand where he co-reigns with God as God's mediating king in the affairs of men, now exercising his will and reign in this world. Heaven and earth are under my jurisdiction, Jesus says in Matthew 28. Therefore, go. But God's will is the will that matters. His is the most important. No one, no king, no empire can thwart it. It got me thinking that, you know, everything still is really the book of Acts. It's, everything still is, isn't it? It's still, God is just as sovereign now that he was in the first century when the church just took off from Jerusalem. Everything is still the book of Acts. That's, I, Steve and I, we wish we would have stolen that name, Acts 29. I don't know about the network. I don't really know what's going on with them, but I love that name, Acts 29, because everything genuinely is still the book of Acts. God is sovereignly working in each one of your lives things that, that are intentional for you to be his witnesses. I talk to people about this all the time. We, we just don't think often. We read the book of Acts and we think that all the amazing events that the Lord orchestrated back there from the pouring out of the Spirit in Acts 2 to, 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 to the first thousands coming to Christ in Jerusalem to the subsequent imprisonment and persecution of the apostles that leads to the church being scattered. All these things, we just think that, that that was for them. That was an amazing time. God was establishing the church. But nowadays, it's just not that way anymore. You know, it's just sort of dull and static and 
And I think it's because we get dull and static. Isn't it? I think it is. I think as Americans, we get apathetic. I think we, I think we do. I'm not saying that I think that that's a prolific problem here. I'm just saying that as Americans, we've got to fight lukewarmness, don't we? That's our issue. Oh, Lord, help us to be useful. Be hot or cold. But I think that's what we think because we're not out there engaging at some level. Again, either with your neighbors or with your coworkers or today in door-to-door. You've got an opportunity to go as we go door-to-door. God is sovereign. God's will. He's doing so many things. You think about in the book of Acts, again, Paul and Paul going to Philippi, thrown in prison, singing songs to the Lord. Earthquake happens. Jail cell opens. They stay. Philippian jailer says, how can I be saved? Paul's like, I'm going to tell you. He gets saved. His whole household. God is just putting Paul here and there and putting him in prison so that Philippian jailers get saved. And then, lo and behold, a church gets established in Philippi. And lo and behold, we get the book of Philippians. And then we get the book of Philippians that tells us some of the most warm and affectionate instruction in the Bible about what brotherhood is all about. And that's because Paul went there and he was singing in jail and the Philippian jailer heard him and the Lord just opened up a whole lot of things there. God is sovereign, brethren. You don't know you don't know when you open your mouth today or tomorrow what God's going to do with that. You don't know. But God is sovereign. His will is supreme. And He's doing all manner of things. I think about meeting my wife. I was thinking about this last night. It's crazy when I tell people about our story. It's crazy that Jason and Paula, and I remember Jason really struggling, like, Lord, should we go? Six months overseas? Remember, it was a real struggle for him, but I'm going to tell you, I'm glad he did. Because somehow along the way, months into that trip, they landed in a little place called Kashmir in India and met a little missionary family with a daughter. That ended up being my wife. God is sovereign. He's working all manner of things and how much better of a man I am because of her. All the behind the scenes does, she does to let me preach and do things. Just and The Lord is so gracious. But these are the things that you just, you, you can't make them up. My brother-in-law, Preston's life, if you could just, gosh, if you could watch the reel of that, maybe one day we will and just see how the Lord saved him from his sin out of heroin addiction. Brethren, don't forget about God's will in your life every day. Think of Acts 17, 24 through 27. Paul up there preaching in Athens, and he he can't enjoy any of the artwork and the scenery. It's too idolatrous, and so he has to stand up and say something. And so he's preaching, and in the middle of this message, he says this, The God who made the world and all things in it, 
since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. See, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. We need to tell people that often. You know, when when you think about, when you're talking to people about the gospel, remind them of this. (laughs) You're breathing God's air right now. God's keeping your heart beating. And you don't give him honor or thanks every, any day, do you? This is a problem because God does this and he's your Lord and you owe him all things. And he says that, Paul says, he made from one man, that is Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now listen to this, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Okay, well, I mean, that makes sense. God appoints to you where you'll live and when you'll live. Habitations and times. You're going to live here. You can live in Greenville, South Carolina. You're going to live between this year and this year. God determines that. Why? That they would seek God. That they would seek God. God puts people in places and in certain times. He puts them where he has them that they might seek him. That he might that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. The Lord has so determined the places we live and the times that we live that we should seek him and find him. And he has fixed these times and places of our living, and this means that you may be a means to those who live close to you in this present time of finding the Lord. Those who live close to you, those who, live, who work close to you in this present time is by God's design, by God's will. We need to recognize that. You're going to the store. You're walking next to someone downtown. It could be an event that will change someone's eternity. That's not just pie in the sky. That's exactly what Paul says here. God's will has put you where you are for His glory. People need to find Him. Help them find Him. Many of you have seen the Jason Bourne movies. And I always think about this. Enjoying the adventure of being God's asset. You know, you think about those assets that would, were sent out to take out Jason Bourne. He calls them assets, these, these little uh, special forces guys or whatever that would go and try to take him out. Of course, none of them could win, right, because Jason's a beast. But, brethren, you're all, you're all assets. Kids, if you're seven years old and you know Jesus Christ, you can change someone's life. You can change your friend's life if you talk to him about Jesus Christ. You can be that little sent messenger to them that will change their eternity. We're all assets if we know Jesus Christ. We have a gospel that Satan ultimately cannot thwart. This is wonderful. That's who we are. We're sent into this world on mission. Jesus says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it under a basket. Are you all lit up? Well, then don't hide. Don't be privatized. Understand God's got you where he's got you for his purposes. You know, sometimes God's will is that we would see someone come to know him. It's a glorious thing we can rejoice. But as Peter says here, sometimes it means that we enter into situations or even seasons of suffering 
for doing what is right. So we looked at God's will, but this, he says, is also manifest in suffering. God's will is manifest in individuals' suffering. He says that. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. God's plan for your life sometimes means suffering, brethren. Just know that. So important for us to know that. Sometimes God's plan for your life is betrayal. That's a hard one. Betrayal. When you feel like you when you feel like someone has every reason to trust you and instead they go off and they say all these horrible things about you. Man, that is hard. <laughs> and you've got to keep a clean conscience. You can't go after them. That's hard. And that's happened to some of you. Sometimes God's will is for strained relationships. Sometimes it's his sometimes it's God's will to be imprisoned. Sometimes it's God's will for people's property to be confiscated. Sometimes it can mean death. Sometimes it is. And why would, G- why would Peter tell these believers this? Why would he tell them this? Why would he put their suffering under, the, ca- under the, the reign and the decree of God's will? Why would he tell them this? Well, they need to be mentally prepared. You need to be mentally prepared. We need to be mentally repaired, prepared, don't we, in our culture. And Jesus is gracious. He, he tells us all of this. John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. It's so important to remember that when unbelievers persecute you, it's because they don't know God. And so you can get a, you can get a grasp on what, what's really most important here is not for you to get back at them, but for them to know God. And that's why oftentimes the writers, the New Testament writers are telling us to be meek because in so doing we exemplify the character of Christ in, in such a way that these people might see that and come to him. In other words, we don't fundamentally make ourselves the issue. They don't know him. That's what he says. And he says, He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. The Old Testament prophets experienced that. David experienced that. And he said, it's it's fulfilled in me. And it will also be with you. When's the last time you've been hated? When's the last time you've been hated for the gospel? When's the last time you've told the truth in such a way, coarse from love, but with plainness that caused someone to 
And I'm not saying go pick a fight. I'm just saying when you stand for truth, this is what will happen. We can't go private here. Jesus said, this, is, this, this fulfills scripture. They hated me without a cause. He says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. Now this is important. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Now Jesus doesn't say, everyone, you know, these people are going to want to kill you. I'm going to protect you so you won't die. He just wants the people to understand that when they kill you, I want you to understand the rationale of why they do it. They think they're offering a service to God. It's sad, isn't it? These people are zealous for God, but it's the wrong God. It's a false God, and it's a God that's a bloodthirsty God. But he says, I've spoken these things to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. He says, these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me, but these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Brethren, in five years... When I'm in jail, because I'm saying that a man is a man and a woman is a woman and that traditional marriage, biblical marriage is the truth, you remember this. So you, don't, you won't need to despair if I'm in jail. Now, I want you to pray for me that I get out. I don't want to be in there. But just remember that. We all need to remember this. Remember. Keep this in your head. These things are the large print for disciples. This is not fine print. This is large print. Jesus speaks these things so that you will not stumble. Peter says these things to these believers. God's will is that you may suffer for righteousness. I write this to you so that you won't stumble when the time comes. What does stumble mean? Well, typically it means to sin. And in this case, it would probably mean to stumble into fear, cowardice, and unbelief due to opposition in your family or in the workplace or by the governing authorities because of your stance for Jesus. But Jesus says, I tell you these things so that you won't stumble. And incidentally here, how important is truth? How important is it to know what Jesus has said? When you're in those moments, you've got to find something for your brain to latch onto to keep you there without wanting to flee or without wanting to lash back or whatever it is. You've got to remember the truth will keep you from stumbling into unbelief and, and fear. Think of the parable of the soils. That, par- that seed that is sown on rocky soil ends up falling away because of the persecution and the affliction that comes. They, they didn't realize that suffering, and deci- suffering as a disciple is, is the large print. And so what happens? They, they end up becoming disillusioned and jaded. And Jesus says they end up falling away. They never truly counted the cost of suffering for Christ. And when time came, they buckled and walked away. Staggering. Thankful Jesus gives us these words. Brethren, just know that following Jesus faithfully will mean persecution. Peter wants them to know that. And it doesn't mean that God has forgotten you when you are suffering. It's the will of God. 
You're right where you need to be. And he says that it's you suffering for doing what is right. By the way, the word here, suffering, really, it's where we get the idea of passion. It has to do with the sort of, um, it's an emotional word, really. Suffering has to do with feeling pain. That's the word here. So the Bible is clear that when you are attacked or opposed or physically beaten for the truth or for righteousness, it's going to hurt, and that's normal. It's not wrong to feel the grief of it, the weight of it, the pain of it. You shouldn't think you're supposed to be a stoic and just be glad that you're (laughs) getting beaten in the moment or being glad that family and friends have betrayed you. I mean, God knows that these things bring tears and heartache. This is, I don't want to play it like, put it in a spiritual category, you know, higher than the Bible does. It is suffering. It is hard. And yet, the thing that will undergird you is that this is God's will. God is for me. This is temporary. He loves me. It's not about me. Those kinds of things. He says that you suffer for doing what is right, or as the ASV, probably better translation is, for for well-doing, well-doing. This connects us back to Peter's conditions for blessing back in verse 10 through 12 there, where Peter was exhorting the brethren to do good. This well-doing or this doing of good can bring joy to some, but as the culture grows darker, it can bring persecution. You know, I think about Piedmont Women's Center you know, Amy describes this often, just all the, the venom of the protesters outside protesting life. And just all the warfare that swirls around that place. As, as Amy and, all the, and a lot, many other ladies are there trying to save precious image bearers from the slaughter. We live in such a dark world that you will get persecuted for trying to save lives. If anything doesn't speak to the depravity of human beings, it's got to be that. And like I said, in our current climate, one thing will probably get you persecuted faster than anything else, and that's for standing for the truth regarding sexuality and gender. Um, Our culture, more and more pushing, pushing, pushing. Not only that we be tolerant to the LBGT, LGBTQ community or advocates, but that we affirm it outright. This is where the current Church of England is. This is where so many denominations are. So many. The SBC, Lord willing, will never be there, but they're headed that way, at least pockets. <laughs> it's going that way. Some of you may, be, may, may have heard in the past weeks of Calvin Robinson. He's become famous like in like three weeks um, for standing for the truth, that Cambridge debate. And he received a ton of backlash. I, I recommend watching that video if you can get past the priestly garb and everything, which I don't understand. But if you can get past all that, listen to the truth that this brother preaches. And I think he is a brother. I think he is. I'm just so thankful for things that he said. But he was totally canceled from the Church of England and not allowed to serve there, which ultimately is going to be for the good, I think. But 
but just to say that he's standing up for biblical marriage, for biblical sexuality, for biblical gender. And, um, and he's hated for it, absolutely hated for it. Paul says clearly in 1 Timothy that all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. It's a clarifying verse, isn't it? It's a convicting verse. There's a sense in which the absence of persecution could mean you are not living a godly life. I would say not even maybe a sense in which. It just means that. I don't mean that every day you're going to be hated. I'm just saying in your life from time to time. In America, maybe not as much, but as time goes on, it will become more and more prevalent. A godly life or godliness is a life that is shaped by being like God. God is for righteousness. God is for truth. God is for Jesus Christ as the exclusive Savior of the world. So if we're for righteousness, or if we're not for righteousness, if we're, if we're, if we're, if we're not going to take stands on clear categories of sin and rebellion in our culture, if we're not going to stand for the truth of God's word and the gospel because we're afraid of what they'll think of us, then we're going to have our reward in this life, which is not a good thing. Our reward in this life will, be, will mean <laughs> condemnation in the next. Or to say it another way, a reward in this life means no reward in the next. It means you will prove to be among the cowards and the wicked who flee when no one is pursuing. I mean, we read about this in the Revelation, don't we? John gives us the contents of the human beings that are in the lake of fire. And he gives various characteristic traits. But in Revelation 21.8, he actually mentions the coward, cowardly and unbelieving. Brethren, let, that, let not that be us. <laughs> let not that be us. And cowardly doesn't mean that you can't ever be scared or afraid. Of course not. Jesus was terrified at what he was about to endure. Terrified. Doesn't mean there are times when you keep your mouth shut when you shouldn't open it. Thankfully, the Lord Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You know, when, you, when you've been ashamed in those moments and you know it, you're like, Lord, forgive me, help me to stand for you next time or maybe go follow up with that person. But the cowardly are those who do not overcome that fear by faith and obedience to the Lord. People who never stand for Christ or the truth because they are fearful. Those are cowards. People who let fear control them and their stand for Christ are cowards. But if we stand for righteousness, truth, and the gospel, we will be persecuted. But it's okay because it's God's will. It's God's will. And again, don't, I know what it's like to think about these passages and think, am I a coward? And that's a good question to ask yourself, but don't get overly concerned about that. Focus on Jesus, focus on the truth, and the Lord will bring you along and grow you in boldness. Ask God to open up more opportunities for you to where you can open your mouth and you can see the Lord answer. 
I'm not saying you're a coward if you feel like a coward because that's probably most of us. Right? I mean, but are you resolved by faith to act in spite of that fear? Because that means you have the Spirit of God and the power to overcome that. You know, sometimes even professing Christians, when they're around you, if you're living for the Lord, if you're living godly lives, will feel judged. And you can't even help it. You don't even know. (laughs) Maybe you don't participate in some of the same vanity or the futility that they do or, you know. And when you're around them, you didn't even know, but over time they've been building up resentment against you because you love the truth and you love Jesus Christ and you don't talk about all these dumb things like they do. Um, And it sometimes will land you in a place where they're going to feel like you're judging them and you've never really said anything to them. It's just that you haven't participated in all those other futile things. These people, you know, when they live in sin and everyone approves of them and they amass these peers that love them and they won't tell them the truth, when you're around... It's just going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be uncomfortable. They will feel judged, and you may have no idea. Persecution can come in many forms. It can come in many forms, but it has to do with you being godly. If you're godly, it'll come. It'll come. Not saying pray for it to come. I'm just saying pray to be godly. Right? We don't pray to suffer. That's masochism. We pray to be like God. But Jesus tells us, if you're like God, they killed me. Do the math. And Peter immediately connects your suffering for doing what is right to your master. Who certainly suffered for well-doing. And what does Peter say, verse 18? Famous verse. For Christ also suffered. He suffered. Christ also suffered. I think the NASB probably doesn't have the right translation here. I think there's more textual evidence for suffered, probably. And it makes sense because that's what Peter's talking about in verse 17. So the NAS says died. I think suffered is probably the right word. For Christ also suffered suffered Christ the child born the son given whose name is mighty God and everlasting father he's also the lamb of God he's also the suffering servant he was a man of sorrows he suffered the Lord Jesus knows what it is to suffer he knows satanic warfare He knows what it is to be hungry in the cause of the gospel. He knows fatigue. He knows betrayal. He knows conspiracy. He knows slander. He knows lies against him. He knows mockings. He knows physical beatings. He knows
nails in his limbs and spear in his side. He knows what it is to suffer the wrath of God. Christ also suffered. Our master and Lord, the one that we follow, suffered. And Peter wants these brethren to know that. He's not asking you to do anything he hasn't already done. And he did it and experienced it far worse than any human being even in hell will ever experience. And not only that, but he did it and he didn't deserve any of it. Not one shred of it, not one ounce of it, not one minute of it, not one second of it. Christ suffered for sins. Not for his sins, that was clear. He had no sin. He died for all of our sin. Jesus Christ is the prime example for suffering for no fault of his own, but in fact of doing good, the best good. And again, what good is, what good is Peter talking about? Well, the fact that he dies for sins. Christ also suffered for sins. Jesus is there on the cross being punished for our sins. He dies to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. As one man said, the payment for millions of people and billions of their sins. That lie you told when you were six years old. That magazine you hid from your parents when you were 12. That slander you said against your neighbor. The fornication you committed in high school. That CD you stole from the store. Maybe that person you killed. Jesus is there hanging for sins. The scapegoat. The propitiation. Jesus suffered. And he suffered for no sin of his own, but for our sins. It's amazing love that would go to take our place as a sinner that we might be given a place among the righteous. And the glory gets better. He did it once for all. Once for all. It was for sin and it was sufficient and effective for all time and eternity. Once for all. What does this mean? It's one word in the original. It means one time with perpetual validity. The work happened once and it only needed to happen once. What is the death of Christ on the cross? Well, it's the place where atonement's made. It's, it's the place where, where God's wrath meets a sacrifice to appease his anger so that he might be in right relation with the people. The cross is the place where atonement is made that suffices for all his people for all time. Only one death required to secure the eternal redemption of all his people who would ever come to him. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the great and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, 
having obtained eternal redemption. The redemption required to secure our place with God in eternity happens at the cross. I just encourage you, if, if you're in the weeds today as a Christian, get your heart and your conscience cleansed by this reality. <laughs> that what you needed to be right with God already happened. That already happened. That's fully done. 100% right now. So take your eyes off of you and look to him and be thankful that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin right now. Once for all, brethren. Once for all. Once for all time. You you can't get any better than this. So powerful, so effective. Jesus says it is finished and he means it. For anyone in here who thinks they have to become a better person to be made right with God, they do not understand their sin or the work of Christ on the cross. Your sin is piled up so high, there is no way you could ever pay off that debt by any good works you attempt. Let alone the fact that you can't even do a good work according to God. So you're double negative here. Because all good works are good works according to God's perspective, united to Christ for his glory, by faith. Therefore, it's impossible to please God without faith, right? So if you don't have faith, you're not pleasing God no matter if you're helping 30 ladies across the street every day. You do it with an orange jumpsuit on, from God's perspective. Your sin is piled up so high So you don't understand your sin, but you also don't understand the work of Christ on the cross. If you could be saved by good works, what in the world is the point of Golgotha? What's the point? If you're trying to make God love you by being good, you you just don't see yourself. You need to realize the cross shows you you're not good. God is. And that he has immense love for sinners. And he sent his son that you would believe in Jesus, trust in him for righteousness and reconciliation. Looking to Christ and not you, that's what the Lord is looking for. I don't know who said it. Maybe I thought it. I don't know. But I love it. It's my favorite. Salvation is in Jesus, not in you. It's in Jesus, not in you. And it's the just for the unjust. Christ suffers for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. The cross is a place of substitution. Was it, was it in one of those videos that we just saw the guys in Lebanon saying that I should have been on that cross? That's a true statement. I, I should have been there. You really, we really don't see our sin like that, do we? We really don't see that we should have been treated like Jesus. But brethren, we, we should have. In a real sense. It's the just for the unjust. Christ steps in our place. The just, who is that? Well, that's Jesus, completely righteous. And I think it's important to know that Jesus wasn't in coming into this world. I think some theologians think that he was there earning a righteousness for us, right? Earning a righteousness, earning a righteousness. I, I don't really just find the merit theology there. Jesus is righteous. 
And he maintains his righteousness by continuing to obey. And then when he dies, he dies a sinless Savior. And what righteousness do we get? We get the righteousness of his own person. We're as righteous as the Son. You don't get any better than that. It's not just a huge bank account full of merit. It's Jesus, the Lord, our righteousness. That's who he is. He's ours. He's ours. He's our representative head. And through his one act of righteousness on the cross, we become justified through his blood. And and again, it's wonderful that he's righteous. It means that our redemption is on perfectly good footing. There's not one thing where any court of law can look in there and say, oh, there's this one part. There's this one part that was missed. Sorry, no longer are you righteous. It just, there's not, that will never happen. He is righteous. He is the just one. And this is staggering because, again, we are unjust. Jesus Christ, the just one, takes the place of the unjust. We are unrighteous in every way when we are apart from Christ, we are unjust people. We don't even know how to do what's right when we don't know the Lord. I mean, we, at some level, but, but not ultimately for him, not in a way that's impartial. We, just, we are unjust people, not righteous. And yet Jesus takes our place. I mean, you're very familiar with this text, but it's worth reading. Very, very much worth reading here. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 God made him, he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin. He was totally sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin, sin. On our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The gospel is that although we are unjust... God can call us righteous or the very righteousness of God because of Christ. Now the book of Proverbs says clearly doesn't he doesn't it that to justify the wicked and condemn the righteous both are abominations to the Lord. And that's true. I mean, we know that. You let a you let a sinner off the you, you let a, a murderer off the hook when he should be getting a prison sentence, that's an abomination. That's bad. Right? Or to say to a person that's truly innocent that you're guilty, that's bad. That's why all that social justice stuff and white privilege talk and all that stuff is really condemnation put on a people just because they're white. That's wicked. That's why that stuff just doesn't hold up. But to justify the wicked and condemn the righteous, that's bad from God's perspective. But here's the issue, that's the gospel. That's what God does. That's what he does. It's amazing. Christ, the righteous one, was condemned for our sake, and we are righteous because of his work on the cross. Christ was regarded as a sinner, treated as such, regarded as a wicked man by the Roman authorities and his father, that through faith, we can be regarded as righteous even though we are in fact wicked. This is the gospel. God goes around justifying ungodly people. And that's the best news in all the universe because everybody's ungodly. 
And through faith, God can say to that one who says, have mercy on me, the sinner, and say, righteous. That's all. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be counted righteous. With a righteousness that, that's all you'll ever need to be made right with God forever. The cross is substitutionary in nature. The just for the unjust. He stands in our place. As the old hymn says, no wrath on his brow. He does now wear. And why ultimately, and this is a whole message in and of itself, so that he might bring us to God. The just for the unjust, once for all, that he might bring us to God. The goal is not your forgiveness, brethren. That's a wonderful reality. The goal is not just righteousness. The goal is that you would be reconciled to your maker. God wants to be with you. This has been the problem from the beginning, hasn't it? It's been the problem from the beginning. God kicks the people out of the garden. The big question is, uh uh-oh, what happens now? He's the source of life. He just kicked us out. And now we're left to ourselves and our sin and our darkness. And so the question, the, the, the resounding question and the thought is, who can be with the Lord again? And so the Lord does an amazing thing, right? He starts to give you glimpses and little sacrifices that he's pleased with through Cain and Abel. And then he starts to, he starts to introduce promises. And then he starts to introduce all kind of different teaching points with Israel and the temple and the veil and the holy place and all these things so that you know that he's working up to this place where one day he's going to show you how he's going to bring you back to himself. And then we have that moment where Jesus dies on the cross and multiple things happen, but one of the things happens is that that veil is torn from top to bottom so that you can be brought back to God. Reconciliation. This is the gospel. Being righteous is so wonderful because we get God. I think someone wrote a book called God is the Gospel. I, I agree. To see his face is the essence of the glory of it all. Jesus wants to bring us to God. It's a loving thing to do. He prays that, doesn't he, in John 17. Father, I pray that those whom you have given me be with me where I am. Do you want to be with Jesus where he is? Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you thought you did, but you're realizing this morning you don't. Here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. See that your good works are really filthy in God's sight. He doesn't want any of them at this point. He just wants your faith and your commitment to him. And he'll say, if that's what you're going to do, if that's how you're going to see yourself, you're righteous in my sight. And then from there, he fills you with his spirit, and then you go out doing some real good. But ultimately, it's so that he might bring us to God. That's, that's it, man. That's it. That's, that's, the, that's the best. And God gives us his word so that we'll remember that that's the best. You know, so that's, that's all I have. We'll start to tackle... Um, the highly debated passage of the end of verse 18 into verse 20 in a couple weeks. I'll be gone next weekend. Um, but uh, you can be praying for that. That's a tricky text. But uh, I think I've got a decent handle on it. It's about Jesus, I'll just tell you that. 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that we would, because of the glory that we found in you, want to go tell others and want to encourage others in it, those who are weary, those who are depressed, those who are discouraged here this morning, that they would just, you would just shout to their soul, I am your salvation. Don't be afraid. I'm yours. Yours, you, you are mine. And you'd wake them up, Lord. You'd, you'd just rekindle them. You would reassure them. As you say in your word, comfort ye, comfort my people. Her warfare has ended. Lord Jesus, you have done and dealt the mortal blow to our adversary. Oh, we thank you for that. These things are so high above us too, Lord, but we find ourselves caught in the, caught in the middle of it all and we're just so thankful we're on your side. And Lord, we pray that you give us heart for sinners. Give us the ability, just with our ability to speak openly, clearly, and plainly to sinners about this truth. Please help us. And Lord, help us to be a church that is known to be a trumpet to all those that we come in contact that our God reigns through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.